I'll begin this afternoon with a quote from D.H. Lawrence. Our task in the coming era is to relocate ourselves in the cosmos and to renew our kinship with all earth life. It is time to join again in the dance drama of biological and cosmic evolution. In short, to regain some humility and find our life's meaning not an individual accomplishment, but in our shared existence. One of the things that is happening here is a renewed kinship with earth life as we explore ourselves and find that Indeed, we are living beings. Indeed, we are animals carrying instincts from the distant past of life on Earth. And what I would really like to do this afternoon is address the spiritual path as a question of identity. I think the entire spiritual path couldn't be summed up in a knock-knock joke. The disciples come to the master, and they say, and the master answers with the number one spiritual question, who's there? <laughs> now, you either get the joke, or you have to be reborn over and over again <laughs> until you do get it. In most of the esoteric spiritual traditions, that question, who am I? has been supreme. The Hopi say, you must ask three questions. Where did I come from? Where am I going? Who am I? The Hindu Advaita masters say, seeker, who, who, is, who is it that's seeking? Who is it that's answering, asking the question, who am I? They keep pushing you against the wall of your own questioning. Socrates said, know thyself. In Zen, they have very colorful ways of putting the question, who is it that's going in and out of these six sense doors? Or, who is it that's dragging this corpse around? <laughs> the Buddha said that true happiness can be found by eliminating the false conceit of I or self. what Diana was referring to the other day when she talked about disidentifying. A caveat, self is not bad. All living beings have a sense of their own integrity and some kind of membrane that separates them from the world and when there is food in the vicinity the membrane is extended in some fashion and when there's harm or or uh, some kind of dissatisfaction, the membrane is withdrawn. Unfortunately, we are all born with a, a case of mistaken identity. We tend to th think that we are in here and the world is out there. Rarely do we notice or experience that as the Buddha said, we co-arise 
We co-arise with all things. That was really his, his great uh, evolutionary leap was to understand that. And the way he understood it was by exploring himself and eliminating all of the factors, all of the aspects of self that he thought were I, me, mine, owned by him. Robert Thurman, the Buddhist scholar, says, Buddhist meditation is an evolutionary sport. I think it's interesting to realize that it didn't always feel this way to be somebody. The clothing of the self wasn't always this tight. Rollo May, the American psychologist, talking about the self as having its own history, he, he wrote, Americans cling to the myth of individualism as though it were the only normal way to live. Unaware that it was unknown in the Middle Ages and would have been considered psychotic in classical Greece. Some of the studies of early Greek literature uh, indicate that the Greeks actually thought that all the voices in their heads were the voices of the gods, which we would consider schizophrenic. Of course, now we think all the voices in our heads are our own, which is its own form of delusion. We seem to have come to an uncomfortable extreme of individualism in our culture, in this land of personalized license plates. The story we tell ourselves is all about me, about my personal drama. We've lost what the anthropologists called uh, participation mystique, a sense of belonging to a community or being part of nature or being part of a greater cosmic plan. We live in a time of a mythia, a culture of narcissism. And it's suffocating. It doesn't feel good to be so wound up in our singular story. We carry a, a great burden then of thinking that every, all of our destiny, all of our, uh, all of our lives are on our own shoulders. We never, nobody says God willing anymore or, or brings in any outside uh, intervening forces that act upon us. We seem to think that we are our own uh, being and that we are guiding our existence. Joseph Campbell said, we need a new myth. We need a myth that will identify the individual not just with his own self, or even with his own family or group, but with the whole planet. We need a new story. We need an upgrade of our mythology. I think it is the story of evolution. I think the story of evolution will offer us forgiveness, will offer us self-liberation, will offer us a sense of being connected, of being part of a much bigger project than the individual monad. 
the story of evolution is also as full of awe and wonder as any Bible. So, what if we could embrace ourselves as earthlings, as being part of the life of this planet? We are composed, you know, of all natural earth ingredients. You are certified organic. <laughs> Just for a moment, bring your upper and lower teeth together. Feel the hardness of your bones. Feel, feel your, you know, sense your skeletal structure here, this, this hardness. Where did it come from? Your bones are made of calcium, magnesium, nitrogen, phosphate, silicates, basically the clay of earth molded into your shape. You are earth sitting on earth, earth walking on earth. Where else could these bodies have come from? You're composed of all the life that came before you. Every time a human egg is fertilized, the DNA code guides it through the whole history of life, from a single cell, the egg, to a multicellular being, to, to a tubular worm-like body that then becomes segmented by a rudimentary spine and ribs with a head appearing at one end, I mean, if you look at the other creatures, you, you realize we all have basically the same floor plan, you know? A head at one end, limbs branching off, the basic length of the body. The human embryo, towards the end of uh, its gestation, grows the features of amphibian frogs, reptilian turtles. Even after we begin to grow arms and legs, we closely resemble the embryos of pigs and rabbits. But all of this happens in the warm sea of the womb, and then we emerge and land here on land as humans. We cycle through the DNA of all the beings that came before us. The DNA an interesting story that we have just unraveled, that we share, we, we found that we, sh we, we share 99.999% of our DNA with each other. Our, our basic IQ and uh, personality and individual variations in, in looks is just a thin coat of paint over the basic human design, most of the information for building and maintaining you is exactly the same as the information for building and maintaining me and the Dalai Lama and George Bush and <laughs> Mother Teresa and Paris Hilton. <laughs> we share over 98% of our DNA with the great apes. We share over 90% with mice. Most of the information that grows us is information for building and maintaining a basic mammal. Share nearly 70% of our DNA with worms. And are you ready? Nearly 50% with yeast. Yeast. <laughs> so if we declare ourselves divine, is not the slime also divine? 
And if not, where do we draw the line? Who gets a soul? It's humbling and also interconnecting when we, when we reflect on what some of this new science is telling us about who we are in the scheme of things. This is a brand new story. There's a wonderful t-shirt uh, from the biology department at Santa Cruz. It says, you share 25% of your DNA with bananas. Get over yourself. <laughs> but the, the key point for us here is that this new information can lie rusting in the neocortex and can never, uh, doesn't necessarily shift and become a part of our felt sense of who we are. It doesn't turn from knowledge into wisdom. And that's where I think Buddhist meditation can really be of service in bringing us a new experience of ourselves on this planet, which I think we desperately need. Alan Watts said, we don't need a new Bible. What we need is a new experience of what it means to be I. The Buddha laid out the path in the Satipatthana Sutra, as, as Sylvia pointed out, how to explore and experience your own mind and body, how your reality is created, and who you are. He advised, as you go through these four foundations with mindfulness, to ask these questions. This constitution, self, what is its cause? Its arising, its ancestry, its origins. He was asking this question, of course, 2,500 years ago before Darwin. Now we're starting to unravel some of our biological karma, if you wish, uh, perhaps beginning to gain some evolutionary intelligence. And we can embody, we can become that evolutionary intelligence through the process of meditation. We'll start with um, the first foundation, breath and body. I first brought my attention to my breath as an object of concentration, which many of you are using, your, uh, how you use your breath. But over the years, it began to take on a different significance. I actually began to experience breath as a sign of life, that there was this breath going on inside of me, telling me that I was one of the live ones. I began to feel that that was really the core of my identity, rather than the thinking mind. I mean, Descartes should have said, I breathe, therefore I am, because you can breathe without thinking, but you can't think without breathing. We're up here, and we, for, we have forgotten about this. For just a moment, close your eyes and, and bring your attention to your breath. And on the next exhale, at the end of the exhale, bring your attention to the palms of your hands. 
And then that next inhale comes automatically. You don't breathe. Breathing happens. If you tried to stop breathing, if you held your breath, you would pass out and breathing would continue. It's like life got into you and wants you to live. With a little reflection, you can also feel your breath and feel it connecting you to all the life of this planet. As you breathe, you can look outside here and look at the green of the plant kingdom and realize that you are exchanging gases with every breath. You are like a cell in this great breathing of the life of this planet. We take it so for granted, you know, it's, and yet this interchange, this co-arising is happening all the time. By the way, you get about 15 million breaths in an average life. Do you know which millionth you're on? <laughs> A similar shift of identity began to happen after I started doing meditation on the sensations in my body. My first meditation practice was with S.N. Goenka, who teaches the body scan. And the body scan is really uh, focusing attention on sensations in the body. And after many weeks of, of doing this practice, I began to feel my body as completely dissolved of any solidity, as if I could feel on some level the atomic uh, or the molecular nature of what was happening inside of me. It was a really uh, a unique kind of uh, revelation that this is not a thing, this body. This is a process. And, uh, and it's, it's so impermanent. You feel the changes happening moment after moment. Nothing, you can't hold on to a moment of, of uh, experience of sensations. I mean, they're, they're gone the moment they're felt. Every cell in your body, this is a, from recent uh, cellular discoveries, every cell in your body goes through 4,000 transaction, transactions a second, processing fuels, exchanging chemical and electrical signals with other cells, monitoring the environment, creating proteins and enzymes. Considering that you have approximately 50 trillion cells in your body, there are a few quadrillion events taking place inside of you every second. So, stay mindful. <laughs> Quadrillions of events happening inside of you every second. The body scan also started to bring me a realization of how the basic instincts work 
about how I like pleasure and I want more of it and how I don't like pain and I want it to go away and how I am in continual reaction to those experiences. The Buddha, way before Freud, understood, he called, he called them uh, underlying tendencies, the basic instincts. When we feel pleasure, we will want more. When we feel pain, we will want it to leave. This is generic. This is the way we are built. This is the way it is in order to protect us. As Trudy said uh, last night, this is part of our shared humanity. But in general, as I have done this meditation practice over the years, my sense of self has shifted some from, my, from the psychological to the biological. From the story of my life, I have become more and more identified with the fact of my life. Carl Jung said, if you're depressed, you're too high up in your mind. <laughs> Feeling the body and breath and sensations, uh, you can begin to feel your identity with all living beings because you're experiencing yourself that way rather than as a story as part of the fabric of life on, on this planet. You feel connected, included. It's very interesting. The Buddha, at one point, in discussing meditation on the body, said, this body does not belong to me or anyone else. It has arisen due to past causes and conditions. For now, it should be felt. This body has arisen due to past causes and conditions. Now we have unraveled some of the specifics of, of that statement. I like to uh, think about the head, which we are very identified with. We tend to, you know, believe that we live up here in this little globe sitting on top of our body. Um, the first heads appeared on marine creatures. Uh, and they were extra clumps of cells that grew up around the mouth of the marine creature so that the mouth could be manipulated uh, a little more easily, more efficiently, in order to grab food. And then the senses began to grow up around that clump of cells in order to see the food, hear the food, smell the food, hear the predators, smell the predators, see the predators. The head is a basic survival organ. That's what it's there for. Wonderful, beautiful, uh, invention, growth. We, we love our heads. <laughs> but to reflect on why they're there, what they're doing there, 
This body is not mine or anyone else's. It has arisen due to past causes and conditions. It worked. The head worked. Now you see most beings have heads. <laughs> when you come to the third foundation of mindfulness, mind states, moods, emotions, chitta nupasana, they point to the heart mind when they refer to mind states. As I said the other day, I used to think that it was thinking that led, led me in the dance of life, but then after meditating and really watching the process of how my mind works, how my nervous system works, I began to realize that quite often the emotions are leading in the dance. And this is probably as it should be. Uh, the limbic system has been around for 100 million years. Uh, the neocortex has been around for maybe 10, 20,000, 100,000 years, maybe. We just, uh, we just got these, these new parts of our brain, the thinking part of our brain. We don't know how to use it all that well yet. But if you begin to explore and watch yourself, you begin to see how the moods come, how the emotions come unbidden. One of the most interesting things you can do at a meditation retreat is take some period of time and begin to count or notice how many moods happen in a particular amount of time. It's astonishing when you really focus on it, how they come and they come through unbidden, and suddenly you're sad, and suddenly you're elated, and then you're nervous, and then you're anticipating. And We aren't in control. If we were in control of our moods and emotions, we would be happy all the time, wouldn't we? <laughs> of course. But when we start to notice how it happens, how they come unbidden, into our lives, we begin to disidentify. We begin to see them for what they are. The Buddha, in, in his instructions on how to work with um, mind states, there's no uh, moralizing, there's no, there's no remedy even offered. He says, just look and see. One knows when uh, there is lust in the mind, that there is lust in the mind. One knows when there's anger in the mind, there's anger in the mind. Very simple. Just to notice is the beginning of freedom. You have to see how the knots are tied before they begin to come loose. I'm amazed sometimes, I, you know, I get so involved in a, in a grumpy mood and then realize it's just low blood sugar, you know, it's just... I haven't eaten for a while, and the latest uh, scientific understanding of moods and emotions is, presents a, a fairly unromantic view of our cherished feelings. Uh, in in his book, the Emotional Brain, uh, neuroscientist Joseph Ledoux claims, uh, emotions are nothing more than feelings associated with basic survival functions 
And when these systems, these survival systems function in an animal that also has the capacity for self-awareness, we give them the name feelings or emotions. So in this view, anger or hatred are labels we give to sensations associated with uh, protecting ourselves or protecting our family or our uh, children. Or affection is, is uh, our awareness of an evolved aspect of the procreation system. What's love got to do with it? You know, it's, the, it's basically, it comes down to the four Fs. <laughs> Fighting, fleeing, feeding, and fornication. <laughs> and we have to bow to the fact that these systems are in place inside of us. They're protecting us. They're there for the, in the service of our survival. Um, Neuroscientist Melvin Connor writes, the motivational portions of the brain, particularly the hypothalamus, have characteristics relevant to the apparent chronic nature of human dissatisfaction. Experiments suggest that our chronic internal state will be a vague mixture of anxiety and desire, best described by the phrase, I want, <laughs> spoken with or without an object for the verb that that is the default position of our brain, a vague mixture of anxiety and desire. You can see it in meditation. You can see the mind continually moving. I want, I want, uh, wait, mm, mm. it's just like, how am I doing, how am I doing? I mean, there's, it is continually sending out those signals. The Buddha's great insight was that that is the source of our suffering. The suffering does not come because we haven't satisfied our latest desire. It's because the mind is caught in this wheel. That's the second noble truth. The third noble truth is that we can see this process and learn to override these basic instincts because we don't have to be always anxious and always full of desire. That we can actually learn because as humans we are given this ability to learn how to override what we inherit from the past. That's the third noble truth that leads to a different kind of happiness, a, a satisfaction a, that comes from a, a rested, a calm, a settled mind. It's a new game in town. It's a brand new game. 2,500 years is not long in biological time. You know, we're talking about the story of evolution here. We are pioneers. This is new. So if you aren't getting it right away, you know, blame it on your uh, moment in evolution. So we come to the fourth foundation which is uh, really all the objects of mind and uh, how they work and uh, how they work to create our reality. I, I think that one of the biggest shifts in my life due to meditation practice has been my relationship to my thinking mind. Uh, we're still friends. <laughs> we live together. But we're no longer codependent. <laughs> uh, 
I think one of the reasons I got involved in Buddhist practice was because I realized that my mind had a thinking problem. It, it was a heavy thinker. We'd start thinking the minute I got up in the morning. Keep thinking in the middle of the afternoon. Had to have a couple thoughts before I went to bed at night, you know. I needed an intervention. Now, again, a caveat. It's not that thinking is bad. Uh, it's our genius. It's brilliant. It's a, I mean, we've devised this way, uh, these sounds and these, um, these ideas, these words that have shared meaning and allows us to exchange information with each other and pass our information on to another generation. It allows us to, to plan, to, and to fantasize a future. And, and uh, it's brilliant. It's a brilliant adaptation. But we perhaps have become too identified with it. And uh, we think that what we are, what we are thinking is, is uniquely ours. I think if you could exchange minds with the person sitting next to you here, the thoughts that you would see, the thinking that you would see would be very similar. It would, it's basically our story. You want love, you want satisfaction, you want security, you want, you know, uh, food, you, you know, uh, uh, you want to get your DNA into another generation or maybe not. <laughs> uh, but we think of it, our, our thoughts are so unique and yet we really share them. We really do share them. Uh, sometime, just take a, a, a session of, uh, or part of a session of, of sitting and see how many of your thoughts have something to do with survival. And that includes like where you are in the pecking order, you know, status or... This is Darwin from his secret notebooks. Why is thought which is a secretion of the brain, deemed to be so much more wonderful than, say, gravity, which is a property of matter. It is only our arrogance, our admiration of ourselves. Now, I think most evolutionary scientists would regard thinking as a, a great adaptation, uh, but uh, brilliant, like, like our senses, like the sense of seeing or hearing, that's the way the Buddha thought of the thinking mind, he thought of it as a sixth sense, not any more or less important than seeing, hearing, tasting. I think if, if we really regard these processes in the light of evolutionary science, it begins to depersonalize all of our experience and demystify, demystifies our experience and allows us to feel not only free from the past, freer from the past, but it connects us to each other and it connects us to all of other life. More, another uh, thought here on, on thinking. Um, this is from Toku Ergen, 
Tibetan teacher who's been very important in the, in the 20th century in bringing Tibetan Buddhism to the West. He said, the, the stream of thought surges through the mind of an ordinary person. In this state, there is no knowledge whatsoever about who is thinking, where the thought comes from, where the thought disappears. One has not even caught the scent of awareness, and the person is totally and mindlessly carried away by one thought after another. That is our ordinary condition. We are completely ruled by these thoughts that are generated by, by what? Past, uh, conditioning, habits, temperament. When we begin to really look and investigate for yourself, investigate, you know, when you're, you catch yourself in a stream of thought, trace the train back. Where did it start? And where, who, who, who decided to think that? Weren't your, wasn't your intention to just be with your breath? Where did that come from? And what is it? What was just a piece of fluff kind of floating through your mind and it grabbed you and it said, you're coming with me? And down you went into its vortex. The neuroscientist Marvin Minsky says, not only can we walk without thinking, we can think without thinking. <laughs> the process goes on within us and without us. Um, what is also becoming clear is that you are not necessary for any of this to go on, for your emotions, for your thinking, for your breathing. Um, in fact, you can't be found. Time magazine, summer of 1995, this is quite a while ago now, a cover story called In Search of the Mind, a summary of the latest scientific research on, on the mind. In Search of the Mind, and I'm sure a lot of people were a little disturbed because they weren't aware that the mind was lost. <laughs> the article concluded, this cover story concluded with this paragraph, which I had to write down. Despite our every instinct to the contrary, consciousness is not some entity inside the brain that corresponds to self, some kernel of awareness that runs the show. After more than a century of looking for it, brain researchers have concluded that such a self simply doesn't exist, period. These are, this was Time Magazine, and they were saying here that this, such a self in, you know, doesn't exist running the show. Why wasn't there a nationwide panic of some kind? <laughs> but it turns out, and more and more uh, confirmation is turning up that the brain is a self-organizing system. It doesn't need you. Uh, Daniel Dennett, famous scientist, you enter the brain through the eye, march up the optic nerve, round and round the cortex, looking behind every neuron, and then, before you know it, you emerge into daylight on the spike of a motor nerve impulse, scratching your head and wondering where the self is. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where the self is. 
It's a mystery. And one of the greatest gifts of doing this meditation practice is getting in touch with the mystery. As that, to me, has been really the gift. Not only do I find some freedom from what I inherit from the past, but I realize that the experience of life is, is just a, a unknown. Why it's here, where it comes from, how it happens. One of the greatest of the mysteries is consciousness itself. This ability to know of ourselves and know of the world and know of ourselves in the world. How did this come about? What, what does it mean to have this? Now, the scientists don't know what consciousness is and mystics are like, bow down to it. You know, uh, they deify it in some way. The Tibetan Buddhists have wonderful names for consciousness or original mind. Here are a few. The predicateless, primordial essence. The weaver of the web of appearances. And here's a great one. The outbreather and inbreather of infinite universes throughout the endless duration of time. <laughs> Describing consciousness as the ground of being. Whatever you call it, we can see this consciousness in meditation. If you look between the objects, the thoughts and the sounds and the, and the other objects of awareness, you might get a glimpse in there of this pure knowing that seems to have no characteristics of its own. Doesn't seem to have a location. Where is it? It's part of the mystery. So, for me, meditation has really been the beginning. And I say that, you know, with great humility that the beginning, perhaps, of a shift of identity. Uh, I'm still caught in my selfing, you know, my, my me, my little drama. But more and more, and especially at retreat, when I sit with my breath and the sensations in the body, and I, and I sit and I experience the thoughts coming all on their own, and realize that it's really a survival drama that's going on, and I see that drama as generic, as, as part of being human. It's so liberating. It's so... Uh, it's such a wonderful experience, and I think it, it's an experience that leads us to not only understand ourselves in a different way, but to behave in a different way toward each other and towards the other life of this planet. I, I think of meditation as a practice of deep ecology. It reminds us where we came from and that we are part of uh, the life of the planet. I have two uh, mantras that I use. Perf I'm perfectly human. Perfectly human. Stuck 
in the same way all of us humans are stuck. Sometimes I think we're like in this, we are the missing link in this transition phase, you know, that we're, we're starting to become awake. We're starting to awaken as a species. And, and I think of myself as part of the species awakening. Perfectly human and it's only natural. There's a wonderful story about the Buddha teaching his son Rahula. Uh, and he, the Buddha says, you know Rahula, if you take a teaspoon of salt and put it in a glass of water, that water will taste salty. But if you put that teaspoon of salt in the Ganges, it won't affect the taste at all. In some way, when we understand ourselves and experience our, can experience ourselves as a member of a species, as, a, as, as part of the life of the planet, we step into a much bigger picture and there's great, there's great relief to be had from that. Maybe I'll end, uh, I'll end with a poem by Robert Frost. No, sorry, Carl Sandburg. Believe it or not, the great Chicago poet, hog butcher to the world, you know, he wrote that wonderful poem that you have to memorize in grade school. He also wrote a wonderful poem called Wilderness. There is a wolf in me Fangs pointed for tearing gashes, a red tongue for raw meat, and the hot lapping of blood. I keep the wolf because the wilderness gave it to me, and the wilderness will not let it go. There is a fox in me, a silver gray fox I sniff and guess. I pick things out of the wind and air. I nose in the dark night. I circle a loop and double cross. There's a hog in me. A snout and a belly, a machinery for eating and grunting, a machinery for sleeping satisfied in the sun. I got this too from the wilderness, and the wilderness will not let it go. There is a fish in me. I scurried with shoals of herring. I blew water spouts with porpoises before land was, before the water went down. There's a baboon in me, clamoring, clawed, dog-faced, yawping a galoot hunger, hairy under the armpits ready to snarl, ready to sing and give milk, waiting. I keep the baboon because the wilderness says so. There is an eagle in me and a mockingbird, and the eagle flies among the rocky mountains of my dreams and fights among the Sierra crags of what I want, and the mockingbird warbles in the early forenoon before the dew is gone, warbles in the underbrush of my Chattanoogas of hope, gushes over the blue Ozark foothills of my wishes, and I got the eagle and the mockingbird from the wilderness. Oh, I got a zoo. I got a menagerie inside my ribs, under my bony head, under my red valve heart. And I got something else. It is a man-child heart and a woman-child heart. It is a father and mother and lover. It came from God knows where. It's going to God knows where. I am a pal of the world. I came from the wilderness. Just sit for a moment.
who's there. Thank you all. We have a little time to walk down to dinner. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.